Habakkuk 2, starting at verse 1. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he shall, will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry. Wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Yea, also, because he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as hell, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto him all peoples, shall not all these things take up a parable against him, a taunting proverb against him, and say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his, how long, and to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. So far, the reading of God's word this morning. Uh, this morning's um, passage, the text, are verses 2 and 3. But before we go to that, let us pray and ask for the illumination of the Spirit. Lord God, we come again before you, and indeed, we need the Spirit to illumine our hearts, to take words that move into the channels of our ears and move them into our hearts, to receive them by faith. Lord, many times we have sat under preaching, perhaps, and not heard, but many times we have heard, and it is all the grace of the Lord Jesus and so we pray that it would be your spirit this morning that would unstop ears, that would open eyes to behold wondrous things from your precious word. Give me wisdom to speak it faithfully. And we pray most of all, be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning I have three points to draw out of the text from verses 2 and 3. They are these, a written word, a faithful word and a sure word. A written word, a faithful word, and a sure word. So first of all, a written word, starting in verse 1, where it talks about, and the Lord answered me and said, this book, as we saw last time, is thick with a court context, the setting of a court where Habakkuk lays before the Lord an appeal or a question. The Lord answers, Habakkuk answers back, Then the Lord answers, and it's a back-and-forth context of a court. He complained, as we saw in the beginning of this book, about the seeming silence of God. Where are you, God, when the people of God are really just um, bringing about all kinds of wickedness? And the Lord's response was worse than Habakkuk expected, because the Lord says, in effect, look around, look at the nations. I'm bringing the answer, and it's worse than you thought. And he's bringing in Chaldeans who, surprisingly, do even worse than Judah itself did. And they're going to decimate the land and the nations. And then Habakkuk's shock is, how, O Lord, can you, the Holy One, bring an even worse people around to do this thing? And so we saw last time, remember, chapter 2, verse 1, that Habakkuk is now waiting for an answer. And we saw that he positions himself up, lifts himself from the world, and seeks to God for the answer to all of these questions. He has a posture of expectancy, a posture of waiting for answers from God. And today, 
In verse 2, the answer comes, right? And the Lord answered me. And I think there's so much comfort in these words, and the Lord answered me. It is comfort and grace because, as John Trapp, the Puritan, would say, faithful prayer never miscarries. It always comes to full term. The Lord will always give an answer to his people. Do you remember Daniel? Daniel in the time of exile, really what Habakkuk is just leading up towards. And Daniel will pray many times, three times a day. And he pleads in chapter 10, we read that the angel comes and he says, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy gods, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. That's amazing, from the first day. It can be many days of waiting. It can be very burdensome sometimes to pray and to seek the Lord. But from the first day, the Lord hears your cries, dear people. The Lord is eager and swift to have his ear to his saints. You do not take up the name of our God in vain when you pray to him. He honors his name in answering the prayers of his people. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, says this, Where God hath given a heart to speak, he hath an ear to hear. Take assurance from that. And so notice it says, he answered me. He says, agony, or sorry, the agonies of Habakkuk himself. God answers personally. God answers you personally in giving his spirit of faith through the word. You will read things in the word and the Lord will bring answers from that precious word. He does not leave you in the dark and he knows each one of you individually and as you cry out to him, he will answer you. And at the same time, we see Habakkuk's answer is a corporate answer for it answers what he must now speak to the people. You know, that's interesting because especially in a modern individualistic tendency of Christianity. It's all about Jesus and me. And we see that Habakkuk's answer personally will bless the people of God. And so realize that as you pray and you pray for your family and you pray for the church, you are ministering through the prayers to the church because God will work through that. Many times we, uh, we pray for others and we, maybe you've had this, and you tell them about God, you tell them about the things of God, and you just almost pull your hair out and say, why don't they just see it? I wish they would just see it. And we talk, and we talk, and we talk to them, and we bring the Bible to them, and we quote scripture, and many times we talk so much with them, but hardly talk with God. You see, the Apostle Paul knows the need of prayer and the answer God gives through the word. He will write to the Ephesians in chapter 1. He says, I make mention of you always in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Evangelism and sanctification of this body needs to be founded in the people looking upward so the spirit can open eyes inwardly so that you will know 
Dear people, what is the hope of our calling from the Lord Jesus? All of that is quickened by prayer. And so the answer is a blessing. But look at what the answer is. It says, the Lord answered me and said, write the vision. Write the vision. Notice it's got to be written. Why do you write things down? It is because, especially in scriptural terms, it wasn't just now for Habakkuk to remember. It had to be known by all people. It had to be expressed across. In fact, the word here that when it says, write the vision and make it plain upon tables, talks about some idea of permanence, some idea of passing on these words. Now, these tablets could be tablets of clay or stone or wood, but it definitely implies transmission over time, a message that it will be handed over and over and over again. I remember hearing um, many years ago, I heard of a, a couple that was newly wed, and they were given at their wedding, they were given a Bible. Um, and they, you know, the church delivered that over one of the elders. And a year later, the, uh, one of the two of the couple comes back to the pastor and hands the Bible back and said, we finished, we read it. That's not the point. We chuckle. Habakkuk was to write something down that was to be read over and over and taken from the impression of stone into the impression of the heart. That's the point. In Latin, the word scriptura, where we get scripture from, means what? The writings. Isn't that interesting? Write these things down. These are, dear people, the writings of God. In Greek, the word is graphē, also meaning the writings. The holy scriptures are the holy writings that penmen were commissioned by God to put down for us. And you know what that means? It means we should be eager then to support the, the distribution of Bibles around the world. And um, I would hardly encourage you to, to support the printing of Scripture and to, to see it go into many nations because often it is as Bibles go into dark nations that, that people who don't even have a missionary witness will read the Word and the Lord will use the written Word to impress His truths upon them. The fact that it's engraved on tablets also means that it cannot be changed. There's a permanence to the Word of God. The doctrine of the preservation of Scripture, which is not talked about too often, but it means we have in our possession a certain and a sure, pure Word that can be received and held on to. And we must look in the lineage of Scripture handed down over generations to say this is the Word of God. You know, it's interesting that even Isaiah was told the similar word. He was said, it's, God said to Isaiah, he says, Now go, write it before them in a table, and note it in a book. And then these words. That it may be for the time to come forever and ever. So the idea is clear. Pass it along so that every generation may be blessed with these words. Now, this can be counter to those who say that, well, the prophets only wrote for the people to whom they spoke for that generation. I've heard people say, well, that was only for Israel, or that was only for the church of Ephesus, or that was for the church of Thyatira, and that's not for us. Well, unless... Unless the book of Romans was only written for the Christians in Rome, 
You know what it says? It actually says there, Romans 15, 4, for whatsoever things were written before, aforetime, were written for our learning, that we through patience and hope and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Romans 15, 4. You see, throughout these visions, we are going to see a redemptive thread woven through the then current events, the things that were going on in Habakkuk's day that will continue to speak even though we will never see the swords of Babylon because that's history. We will see the swords of the new Babylon, the Neo-Babylon, as God's enemies continue to mount their assaults on the church of God. And so this vision, to conclude that point, is written also for us. Now this kind of takes us to a little bit of a shifting of gears here because notice the phrase, and make it plain. Make it plain. Now some scholars just think, well, that's just large, legible letters. But the pl plain language is actually the language of legal documentation. This is seen in a very strong link back to Israel's covenant documents. Where does your mind go when you think of Israel's covenant documents? It goes back, right, to Exodus 20, the giving of the law. Remember, the law was given twice, but the word to make plain, that rare Hebrew word is only used three times in all of the Old Testament. Twice in Deuteronomy. And here in this passage, that's it. Deuteronomy 1.5. On this side, Jordan, in the land of Moab, began Moses to declare this law or to make plain this law. The other one, Deuteronomy 27, 8. And thou shalt write upon the stones all the words of this law very plainly. In fact, the word for tablets is hands down most frequently used for the covenant book of the people of Israel, the Torah. And so this is unmistakable, unmistakably a link that Habakkuk gets back to the founding of the covenant people, the, the community of Israel. And the word tablets is plural. You see that? Tablets, tables. Just like in today, when you go to the bank and you get a mortgage or you make a covenant with the bank, you get a copy and they get a copy. And thus you had two tables, most likely the fact that it was written on two tables of stone was the idea of witness of two identical copies, just like the Old Testament. And here as well, this is no accident. And all of this means that this vision that we're going to see unpacked in the next messages about this book are all at the level of the Torah, of Israel's historical founding documents. Why is this significant? It's significant because if you just flip your Bible back to chapter 1, do you remember verse 4? We talked about this. Therefore, ha-Torah, the law, the Torah, is slacked. Habakkuk had questioned the wickedness of the people, the fact that they had run roughshod over the law, and he says, Lord, what are you going to do? Are you going to enforce your law? Is your law going to hold up? And he gets a new vision, a new covenant document that links straight back to the founding documents. 
So God's answer is a reestablishment through this vision of the hope, the surety of his covenant. He will uphold his end of his covenant people's bargain all the time. He has not abandoned the covenant book. He has not abandoned what he promised to do. He holds fast to this. You know what's interesting is that in Jewish rabbinical history, you remember there's 613 laws in the Old Testament, in the Torah, in, 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 in those books. The Jews believed and taught that the 613 were reduced to one in this vision. They saw the link. They saw the link. Now we're going to plumb it out next time further, but it is in verse 4. The just shall live by his faith. It is little wonder that that phrase gets quoted so often by the apostle Paul. The just shall live by his faith. You know what that means? It means that the Torah, the law of God, which was slacked by the people of God, that is a problem, isn't it? Is connected to the hope of this vision because in this vision, God will take the law that was broken by the people and engrave it on the people who walk by faith. You know what it really says? The just shall live by faith because the law will be written on their hearts. What does that echo? What does your mind go to? It was a contemporary prophet of Habakkuk, wasn't it, who spoke about these things, where God said through him, in Jeremiah 31, 33, God says, in those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it on their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Those are covenant words. I shall be their God. They will be my people. And so God is going to keep his end of the bargain and internalize the heart, uh, the law of God in the heart. Now notice the next words here. It says, that he may run that readeth it. It's a strange phrase, that he may run that readeth it. Some scholars of yesteryear saw in this that it's almost the idea of a guy bolting by, but because it's written so plainly, he can quickly catch a sense of it and move on and knows what's written. But I don't think that's what it means. I agree with those scholars who, who sees in the runner a messenger because in those days people didn't jog for fun. People were in shape. You ran if you were to herald something. Behold a runner. Gehazi was the servant of the prophet and he ran with messages. That's the whole point. So runners herald and heralds go in public to announce what they've been told to announce. And so the idea of the runner here is he's going to only proclaim what is written, what is inscribed in the vision. In fact, to run without God's sanctioned word is strongly forbidden in the Bible. Jeremiah 23:21 says this, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. See that? They heralded, but God hadn't told them to speak those things. When someone asks you what the Bible teaches, here's a simple question. Is your answer what the Bible actually says? Do you proclaim a 
according to Scripture, or do you proclaim what people want to hear, like the prophets, the false prophets did? So what is the heart of the message? This is interesting because you remember as we link this back to the giving of the first tables of the law, remember the first ones were smashed because the people abandoned God and put up the golden calves, remember? It speaks of human unfaithfulness, Israel's unfaithfulness. Human unfaithfulness and unbelief really is the story of history, isn't it? It's the story of the reason why our hearts need to be changed. It's the story of the reason why this community needs the law written on the hearts. But do you remember the idea of proclamation here when it says here um, that it is for an end appointed, or sorry, that he may run that readeth it. You see that? The word readeth means to proclaim. That's actually what the Hebrew word means. But again, going back to the original documents here, what was proclaimed at the giving of the law? Who proclaimed at the giving of the law? What was said? Whose glory was put forward? Who speaks? Is it Moses that proclaims? No. It's God himself. Listen to this from Exodus 34, 6 and 7. It says, And the Lord Jehovah passed by before them and proclaimed. It's the identical word of the word readeth. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. That is the proclamation that accompanied the tables of stone. And so every proclamation of the law, every proclamation from Scripture must speak of God because God proclaimed himself, his goodness, his justice, his truth, his righteousness. And so putting that together... This is what it means. It means that Habakkuk's vision will ultimately also proclaim God. And I think that is a message of hope. Because so often what is written gets turned into some form of merit some form of law-keeping, some form of lifting yourself up by your bootstraps. But that's not what God ultimately wants proclaimed. He wants himself proclaimed, who he is, his provision. And so I think this is a message of hope. And as you read the scriptures, as you study the writings, study them to know God. Now, when we do that, it is sometimes really hard because in this nation, when we see the candle of Christianity flickering, you might be very gloomy. Our future is not gloomy, however, and it should not be clouded by pessimism and failure. The vision is a vision of hope. It is worthy to be announced to this community even in the darkest of times, because Habakkuk's times were dark, we have a light to bring to a dark community. And so speak, please speak to your neighbor, to your coworker, to your children, and tell them about God who brings hope in the writings of Scripture.
Now brings me to uh, the second point, a faithful word. It gets to the next verse. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. What is the vision? You might have been wondering this whole time, well, what is the vision? Well, the vision is really the rest of the book. Starting in chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to verse 20, we get one part, and then from chapter 3 down to the end of verse 19, we get the final revelation. What's interesting is when you think of visions, you get two parts. A vision involves both your ears and your eyes, right? You see something and you hear something. Well, that's exactly how this is broken up because the sound part, the auditory side, is from verses 4 to 20 of chapter 2. And the vision part is from chapter 3, from 3 to the end, especially 3 to 3.15. And so the vision encompasses both those parts. But notice it says these words, but the vision, all these words, are yet for an appointed time. That word means a determined time. Time. It means that although the fulfillment of these words, of this vision, may lie far distant in the future, it is nevertheless a fixed date on the calendar. It's almost as if you were looking on an agenda and you had piles of them for many, many years to come and you flip through them and all of a sudden there it is, a big red circle. That is the appointed time that God has fixed to fulfill the words of this vision. Now that's interesting because Habakkuk was living with a problem that the Chaldeans were going to come and decimate the people and it looked like the covenant people were going to be wiped out. So he wants an answer for now. And God says, write these words down. The answer will come when it comes. We are an instant culture. We want answers now. I speak to people. I've prayed and I've prayed and God isn't answering me. He's got the circle where he wants the circle. Where instant satisfaction, instant purchases. People will go into debt to have something now. How many times haven't you thought God has to act on your timetable? Oh, you seek him. Many times. But you want a quick resolution to your struggles. God doesn't work that way. So often, I have little patience for the God of all patience. And the problem then is with me. Calvin said, to wish for God to conform to our rule is extremely preposterous and unreasonable. And then he says these profound words, and there is no place for faith if we expect God to immediately fulfill what he promises. You see, God acts not according to your anxious timetable and mine, but to his unshakable divine decree. And so let us then have faith to be satisfied with what he has written. Ours is to be satisfied with the same faith that took Noah and to go completely countercultural and to build an ark and prepare for that day on which God had determined 
the floods would come. The same with Abraham, who obeyed the word and forsook his family and went out of Ur of the Chaldees to go and to seek a place that God had called him to. He walked by faith. Isn't the real trial of faith to yield to God's word, even when the accomplishment doesn't even appear on the horizon. That is walking by faith. Is that your faith? The text goes on and it says, but at the end it shall speak. The word for the end means the termination point, the circle on the calendar. Now we saw in chapter 1, verse 17, we look back at that verse when it says, and shall they, the Chaldeans, therefore empty their net and spare not continually to slay the nations, i.e., won't the Chaldeans just do it all over again and keep decimating and keep destroying and, and keep bringing destruction? Will the wicked, you can ask today, will the wicked continue to devour? You know, I with this whole war going on in the Middle East, I've been kind of following some of this stuff, and it is a dark world. And you read more news, and you actually get more depressed. I, I, I'm just like, man, all they bring out is how much more hatred and anger and, and death there is. There's, there's so much wickedness. Will the wicked continue to devour? God says, unto the appointed time. But he says, there will be a final resolution. The end of imperialism, the end of oppression, the end of lawlessness is a fixed time. Take courage by that. And we need that courage because, you know, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, man, you read history, the history of the world, and maybe you remember Social 30 and Social 20 when we talked about ideologies and you got words about socialism and democracies and constitutions and diplomacies. You know what it means? How many thinkers in the past set their hope on all of these different ways of running the world? Oh, surely if we have Marxism and we all do things together, it's going to be great. Well, how did that pan out? How is our democracy panning out how good is our constitution look in the last number of years? How robust was it really? What good is diplomacy really doing? Perhaps you've been banking on all these things. Perhaps you're sitting here some sort of a skeptic to God and his word and the writings because you think, well, I only have to be here. But one day the solution will come from me. I, I'll carve my own course. I'll chart my own path. How, how has that worked out for you? How has that worked out for this world? It doesn't work. It doesn't work, does it? No, the appointed time, the resolution, is God's conclusive solution to reaching the goal. It is the final stage of redemption for his people. And therefore, the word appointed time is packed, as it is in the book of Daniel, with end times significance. It is, in, to use theological terms for a second, it is heavily eschatological, dealing with last things. And then it says, at the end, it shall speak. That word to speak is kind of interesting. It's quite a rare word in the Hebrew. It actually means to exhale, exhale, or to breathe out. At the end, the vision. 
come breathing to life. That's amazing. Remember the valley of dry bones? The breath of life comes into this army. In the same way, at the end, at the termination point, on that fixed day of God's determined purpose, it will breathe to life and manifest vigor and hope and expectation. One commentator put it this way. He says, true prophecy is animated, as it were, by an impulse to fulfill itself one day to come to life. And therefore, in every way, these introductory words to the answer that Habakkuk um, is given in the vision is packed with God's own desire, God's own longing to see the vindication of his word that gets written down, transcribed, that one day breathes to life. And therefore, it says in the next words, and it shall speak and not lie. Because how many prophets lied hope to Israel? Oh, it's all going to be fine. Go to Egypt. Egypt will take care of you. And Jeremiah says, don't go to Egypt. But they go anyways. And what happens? They get destroyed. It's not a solution. These prophets lied and lied and lied. The Bible actually says in Micah 2.11, it says, If a man walk in the spirit of falsehood and do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink, he shall even be the prophet to this people. You know why he says that? Because that's what they wanted to hear. You want to be a prophet to the people? He says, go ahead. Tell them what they want to hear. Talk about wine and strong drink. Talk about parties and celebrations. That's the kind of people kind of prophets these people want liars people that make up stories is that what we want no we want truth redounding truth we want God and that's why God says it will speak in the end but you have to be patient God will never disappoint it means God will never break his word in fact remember in in uh, numbers 23 it says God is not a man that he should lie neither the son of man that he should repent Hath he said it, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make good? Is Christ not the Amen? Surely, certainly, the faithful and the true. Maybe you've made promises and you've broken them. Sometimes you're limited by your abilities. Sometimes it's your time. Sometimes it was others who got in the way. Most of the times, it's our own sinfulness. Not so with God. The Bible says he is a God of truth, without iniquity, just and right is he. Deuteronomy 32, 4. Perhaps you're sitting here and you think, well, yeah, but... My particular situation is worse than someone else's. You can't compare me to them. Mine's worse. My situation is hopeless. Maybe you think, well, actually, it's not my situation. It's me. I'm hopeless. I'll never change. And your personality, you say, I'm just a pessimist by nature. That's who I am. 
It's how I look at the world. I'll, I'll never see it. I'll never see hope. Perhaps it's tragedy in your family that clouds everything you do or think. You don't think you can lift yourself beyond that tragedy. Maybe that's exactly where you are. Does that mean that God then is worthy of your unbelief in those situations? Because that's what that is. Despair and depression are all symptoms of unbelief. Is our God worthy of that? Is our God worthy of being restricted by what you feel or what you think of him? That is exactly what Israel did, and they flopped, and they kept falling and falling and falling. It says in Psalm 78, 40, it says, How oft did they provoke him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? Yea, they turned back and tempted God, and these words, hear these words, and limited the Holy One of Israel. That's what unbelief does. It makes God to a certain size, but no bigger. You limit him. And that's why you're depressed. That's why we walk with so much dejection and hopelessness and despair. Oh, know this about your future, Christian. God may conceal his hand to us, but what he has spoken will never deceive. When he opens his hand, it is exactly what he promised with his mouth. It will always come true. And so let us be satisfied then as a people with what he has promised. The outcome is as sure as what he has spoken. The word of promise is the possession. It is as strong and as equal to the reality itself. Which brings me to the final point, a sure word. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. The words, though it tarry, or some translations have, if it seems slow, seem to say, well, if it delay, if delay happens, it means fulfillment of what God has spoken can linger. And you have to be oriented to the idea of imminence. It could be Today, it could be next week, it could be in years to come. It could be when you're dead already. But God's answers come. What you believe about the future then conditions how you live in the present. Okay, it can linger, but it will come. And therefore God says, wait for it. Isn't that interesting? Because we saw in verse 1, Habakkuk puts himself on the tower of waiting and says, I'm waiting for you, God. And God answers. And God says, I'll give you these words, write them down. And now wait again. See that? Our duty as Christians with the word is simply to wait. Even when that may be very difficult for you to do in your situation. Maybe you've been praying for a child. You've been praying for the health of a child. Wait. God's answer comes in his time and in his way. The true character of faith is one of continued trust. But often like Israel of old, we want to fulfill God's promises for him. 
I've actually seen that in magazines. Help fulfill biblical prophecy. Do this and this and this. No, you just are called to be obedient to the word. This is the will of God for you to the Thessalonians, even your sanctification. God's will for us is our holiness. He will take care of fulfilling the details of his word. He does not call you to adjust his promises for him or to fit them and squeeze them into the changing circumstances. Don't try to squish them in to your box. And then it says, because it will surely come and will not tarry. And this is kind of interesting because look at your Bible very carefully. You see back in verse 3 earlier, it says, though it tarry, and at the end it says, it surely will come, it will not tarry. So we have two tarryings here, doesn't make any sense. Is this a contradiction? No. The first word, to tarry, has a slightly different nuance. It means to hesitate or to linger. The second one means it will not delay. It will not be late. The first one speaks of our perspective. From a human perspective, it may appear to tarry. It may appear to delay. We judge according to our haste. But the second one is from God's perspective. It's certain. It's sure. It's an inflexible certainty. God never postpones, ever. God's time is the best time. You know, I'm myopic. If I take my glasses off, you could say all kinds of things and do all kinds of things. I, I can't really make out what, who, I don't know if you're smiling right now or crying about what I'm doing. But myopic, my, to be myopic means I don't see far. I see outlines, I see blurry figures. And if I take my glasses off and walk around, I'll stumble quickly. I trip. I go in haste. But these glasses are as the word of promise. I get precision by them. I start to see reality and walk forward into the future, the paths of life, with the precision of God's sure, certain word. And by these, I know the target is fixed. I know the date is coming and it's not moving. That's why it says it will not tarry. Now I want to really tie a bow on this whole thing at the end when it says it will not tarry, the word it, because throughout history many interpreters have seen in the it a he. Because it seems to speak of the vision, right? Visions are inanimate things. But he is a person. Visions don't actually tarry or delay or come. Visions don't actually speak out loud. They are recordings. But beings tarry, delay, or come. Beings lie or speak the truth. And I agree with those expositors who see in the vision really a person. So let's read it like that. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and will not lie, though he tarry, wait for him, because he will surely come. He will not tarry. 
God himself will come to vindicate his words. God himself has an enduring allegiance to himself. You remember how I said earlier that visions go both through the ear and the eye gate. Remember that? And I said that in chapter 3, we got into the sight part of the vision. Look at verse 3. Chapter 3, verse 3. God came from Timan and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise and his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand and there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence. The burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood, he measured the earth, he beheld and drove asunder the nations and the everlasting mountains were scattered and the perpetual hills did bow his ways are everlasting. God came. God came. That's the whole point of the vision. God is coming to bring deliverance to you covenant people, to us wretches. He's coming. This is interesting. Because the coming of Jehovah is precisely how the book of Hebrews will cite this very passage. It's in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews. You can turn there, but I'll give you some context. Turn there, and I'll let you find it first. Hebrews 10. Verse 32. Before we start reading, remember this. This is written to Hebrew Christians. They were Jewish, had turned to Christ, the Messiah. But things got tough, and now they wanted to go back. They wanted to give it up. Why? It was taking too long. Life got too hard. Things were difficult. Look how it's written here. But call to remembrance the former days in which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. In the beginning, when they became Christians, it got hard. Partly whilst you were made a gazing stock. I literally talked with someone not too long ago that said, I am a scandal. I am a gazing stock. That's exactly what Christians become. A gazing stock. Go on. It says, both by reproaches and afflictions and partly, partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. So they joined in with the persecuted for ye had compassion of me and my bonds. They went to prison to, to, to be with those who were bound in prison and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. In other words, while they were in prison, their houses would get plundered, knowing, that in, your, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. You get that? Just stop for a second. You get what's going on? You come to faith in Christ. You're hardcore for Jesus. You're standing up. You're willing to endure for Jesus, knowing that you have in heaven a great possession. So you'll let your house get wiped out. You're willing to go to jail for Jesus. But it takes long. Jail time is more years than you expected. The burning of the house happened again after you rebuilt it. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, 
which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience. Remember, waiting. That after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come. There it is. And will not tarry. The just shall live by faith. Citation from Hebrews. And it is all packaged with the concept, not of the vision, but of him who will come. Him, Jesus Christ. You see, him is Christ himself who came. What Habakkuk might have seen in part as he was transcribing this vision, as when it says God will come from his mountain, speaks of Christ. Now Christ came to deliver his people from sin, and he is coming again to finally deliver his people from the consequences of sin. You see, in Habakkuk, the end, the goal, the termination point might be the point at which the captivity ends, the 70 years are over. That's maybe how you think in the short term. The injustice is gone. You're back in the land of Israel. It's no wonder that we opened up this morning with Haggai. Because where's Haggai? He's after Babylon. They're back in the land. But they look at the temple and they're like, it's not nearly as big as the old one. It's not nearly as glorious. And you know what? The Shekinah glory never came on that temple. And we saw in the call to worship that glory will come at the appointed time. Who is the Shekinah? Lord Jesus. And we beheld his glory. The glory of the Father, both full of grace and truth. Jesus says, I am the temple. You see, he came. And so the end of all injustice, all hardship, all oppression, everything you see and hear on the news and everything you are experiencing is bound up in what these Hebrew Christians were told to hold fast to and to wait for and to remember he's coming again. And the vision, remember, in chapter 2 spoke woe to the enemies of God. We'll see that as we go through that. Earth-shaking judgment on apostate Judah and the Chaldeans. And all of that foreshadows final judgment. Because when Jesus comes back again, it is not a good day for those who weren't looking for him. It is not a successful last day of your life if you are not in Jesus Christ. You have wasted your life if you're outside of Jesus Christ when he comes again. Have you forgotten about that? But that last day also speaks of the vindication of God's people who held fast, who looked, who looked like Noah and kept building in spite of the mocking, in spite of the fact that not a drop of rain had fallen to the ground yet. Psalm 102 says this, Thou shalt arise. And have mercy upon Zion for the time to favor her. Yea, the set time is come. It is coming soon, dear people. Perhaps you thought Jesus would mop up evil sooner. 
Some people have said, oh, it's going to be in my lifetime for sure because look how bad it is. Some of them have already passed on. Many of them have passed on. Remember Y2K? It was all going to be over then. That's come and gone. Adversity can cause you then to question the promises. John the Baptist even had that. Remember? He said of Jesus, Behold here, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John keeps preaching and he confronts Herod. It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Guess what happens? Herod, John, John the Baptist gets thrown into prison by Herod. Things got tough. So what does John the Baptist do? He sends out two disciples to Jesus with one question. Art thou he that should come? Or do we look for another? He was discouraged. He wasn't supposed to go to jail. The Messiah was here. And Jesus' answer comes from Isaiah, where it talks about the blind see, the lame walk. You look that up later at home. That reference, back in Isaiah, it's a couple references. Look them up. They talk about the coming of Jehovah. He will come. John knew his writings. He knew the scripture. If you know the scripture, you will be prepared for the answers when they come to you. You see, if the first coming was fulfilled with laser-like precision, know this, the last day will be identical. The Bible actually says in Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Time was pregnant. The due date came and the son was born exactly according to promise. Do you think God's going to delay on his last day? Do you think it's going to be one millisecond too late or too early? No way, Christian. Hold fast. God will come again. He will not set another date. It will be there. Now some of you may be nearing the last years of your life, humanly speaking. You look back at good years with many precious memories. But you also look back at years of failure and discouragements. You might miss some people that were once part of your life. The older you become, the more people you bury. Those people you miss, what made them so valuable ultimately? They were people who you loved. But if you were a Christian, they were missed most because they too were Christians. And they spoke to you of Jesus Christ and his faithfulness. Have you passed on the baton to the next generation? Even in these last years of your life, are you p passing on the words of God's faithfulness? Who has always been trustworthy in every day of your life, people? Is it not God? But perhaps you're young. Life's in front of you, humanly speaking. Who are you going to trust to move forward? I was speaking with someone the other day, trying to impress 
these truths in their lives. You know what I said to them? This could be our last conversation. The Lord may take me. He may take you sooner than you thought. But be assured of this. Everything written in this book from Genesis to Revelation, from God's speaking the word of creation to the word coming and speaking life to the word coming again in glory is as sure as God himself. Do you know the faithful and true God, young people? Do you know him, elderly people? Soon, beloved, the master will come again. If you're in Jesus Christ, that day of his return, you will say, as it were, farewell to struggle and sorrow. You will say farewell to God's enemies. Farewell to all who persecute and mock your Savior. You will say farewell to sin. And believer, you can boldly say already today, I go to be with Jesus and his people forever. God's answer is a vision. No, it's a person. It's him who brings hope amidst the ashes. Soon, brothers and sisters, you will raise your hands and clap for joy, for the Lord Jesus will come. He is worthy to be admired by all the saints. That's what the day of his coming will be. Your future, beloved, is perfectly determined by God, written on tablets, engraved in the Holy Scriptures. And therefore, go out from here, believers, Lay hold of the future by laying hold of Scripture and trust the word of promise. Amen.